Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Chris B. Hi, I'm Chris B., compulsive overeater. How are you guys? So before I start, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my experience. I'm, if you're new here, I'm not an expert at this. I'm just one of us, and this is my experience that I'm going to give you. But one of the things you need to know before I even start is that, you know, if you're a compulsive overeater and you're alone and you're trying to get over this thing, you don't have to do it alone. You, you don't have to do it alone. There's all of these people and... Tons of meetings in L.A. to go to where you can hear your story. And if you don't hear your story with me tonight, keep coming back. You will find your story, and and you will get the help you need. So, yeah, good to be here. So, compulsive overeating for me started, uh, uh, you know, I come from a really normal, good family. Um, I grew up in Marin County in Northern California in a little town called Tiburon, the Shark. And, uh, um, and, um, you know, up until like eight, I had a pretty, at least I thought I had a kick-ass normal family life, you know. I was, I was very much at the center of my family, and I had an older sister who's four years older than me, and, uh, a mom and a dad, you know, who were my mom and dad, and, and we had a good life. It was a great life. Um, my perception at the time as an eight-year-old was that, uh, um, my parents started splitting up. And it got rough. Our household got really tough. And my mom, um, who's now 24 years sober in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and my dad were having a really tough time. And I was trying to figure out my way in there, and I could not control how it was working or not working. And my first inclination um, in trying to control the world was that, you know, I could eat. I could eat and eat and eat more, and that seemed to do it. And with all that was going on in my household, um, it seemed like I could stay home, say that I was sick to my mom, and she was so busy dealing with what she was dealing with that she was cool with that. You know, she didn't really have time to check in to see what was really going on. And she's like, great, cool, if you're sick, stay home, there's the fridge, there's the, it's all good. And that's pretty early eight, nine, I think we had a housekeeper so I could kind of get away with it and do whatever I wanted, eat, eat the way I wanted to. And uh, I will say I am, you know, compulsive overeater, and I've said it before in meetings that essentially um, I feel like a, a, a better label for me is just binger, you know, because I'll look for any substance. Um, but sugar and food and uh, uh, really anything I can get at that's, uh, that's that um, satiates me and makes me feel like I'm okay. Um, one of those, uh, we were reflecting, I was talking to somebody else, and I remember being about eight, nine years old and going into the fridge and eating everything out of it so that nothing was left, and then I had to go to the dry goods. And then it was like, hmm, smoked oysters in oil. Yeah, okay, that sounds good, and I'll knock that thing out. you know. And so what I ate was not pretty, but I, I do recall... Uh, as things got a little crazy in my home life as a kid, my first, my first real compulsive overeat was at a party in Sonoma, 
and my mom uh, had set out a punch bowl filled with um, fruit, melons, and cool melons, and what was it, and sorbet, and I just went, and it was a big drink thing. I don't know what it was, but I drank a lot of it, and it was really sweet, and it was awesome, and I didn't swim. I didn't swim, and I think I, my, my mom and I were talking about it. I think I was like seven, eight years old. And I didn't swim, and everybody was partying, having a great time, and was, we were at a swimming pool, and I was on a raft, and they were dragging me around really fast, and I was hanging on to the raft, and I went over the edge and went to the bottom and just sat there. And I, didn't, I thought, this is cool down here, you know, this is cool. And, and someone dove in and pulled me out, and I'm spitting up, and blah, blah, blah. And my mom came over to me and she said, oh my God, honey, you know, and I remember, I'm like seven, eight years old, you know, she said, are, 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 oh, you know, are you okay? Oh my God, you fell on my... And I went Linda Blair on her and I said every profound word I could come up with and it felt great and I was empowered and interestingly enough, that bowl was filled with champagne as well as sorbet and sugar and all this other stuff. So, that was my first drunk, as well as my first really go-after-food binge. They happened together at the same time, and I knew that those two things could save my ass. You know, They brought me power, and I recognized that they brought me power from that very instance. She sent me to bed, and I wouldn't stay. I'd come running back out. And she'd say, look, you, you, know, she's like, well, you know, I'm sure she was asking around, like, what do I do with a drunk kid, you know? And so, <laughs> so, so that, you know, that started all of this, damn it. And I will say right off the bat, too, I, I really don't believe, like I said, I came from a great family. I absolutely believe that I was a compulsive overeater from the beginning. I believe that there's nothing that happened in my life to create me as a compulsive overeater. I had it, and I had it from the get-go. Um, that's just the time that I can remember that, like, I went for it, and again, and this is a complete, you know, compulsive overeating is a, is a disease, and I love that word, dis-ease. You know, I had always been at dis-ease, and I'm dis-eased as a general state, and it seemed that eating could fix me. You know, it made it feel better. And so throughout years of kind of being a depressed kid, uh, and, and of course I ballooned up, you know, from like 9 to 12, you know, heavy, r really heavy kid. And essentially, you know, I'd go to the pediatrician, and they'd, they'd say, morbidly obese, he's getting morbidly obese. And that morbidly obese was like, you know, the word that I heard from, from preteen, it's like, wow, he's really getting heavy. And so they'd give me, my pediatrician would give me um, these diet plans, and it would be like the 1,200 plan, the 700. And it's like, I'm going to go home and count calories as a 9-, 10-year-old kid. No way, not going to happen, you know. It's not going to happen. And, and again, my household got pretty crazy. The household got crazy. And my parents separated. My dad didn't know what was going on. You know, he's a good guy, non-alcoholic, good life. And you know, he didn't know what was going on. But um, so, um, you know, as, as that fat kid, um, I lived that life as a fat kid growing up. And thank God for puberty. I popped up, and all of a sudden now I'm the tall, thinny, thin, skin guy, skinny guy. You know, I'm on the other side of it now. And you know, getting ridiculed by my friends, like, little bony knees, you know, and it's like, from that guy to bony knees, you know, where's the joke, God? What's going on, you know? And, 
And and so again, I've always had this perception that I'm different than my fellows. I'm totally different. I don't feel like everybody else. You know, I'm kind of the 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 guy who's laughed at. And so I tried to overcompensate. I try to be the best at whatever I was doing. You know, I would uh, competitively. Um, uh, just try to be the best at what I was doing. And, and again, eating, um, a, a really early on, I started drinking using drugs really early on. I, I must have been in junior high when all that came to full fruition. And, you know, we all have our logs here and what our background was. And, you know, there's not an AA meeting, so I want to stick to food. But uh, so I ran around the world doing geographics. I lived in New York for a while, lived in Maui, tried new places, you know, would, would, and tried new diets and, uh, tried new over-exercising. Um, around the end of high school, I got this idea, I'm a really good skier, so maybe I can make the Olympic team, convinced my parents to send me to South America to train in Portillo. And uh, um, when I got there, and I did train with the CUS ski team in, in what was it, 1980-something like that, whatever it was, and, uh, um, and I really kind of didn't want to do all the work you have to do to train. You know, I was really good, and I really showed uh, talent for it. And, and like all the other areas of my life, really this has just been like the 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 – theme of my life is that I would overcompensate. I'd go so far extreme to the other side that I would be great. I'd be so good at it until I wasn't. And then I'd be terrible. You know, it's like, what happened to this kid? He was doing great. You know, fastest time yesterday, you know, and it's like, now, where is he? You know, well, he's he's down getting papas fritas in town and, you know, you know, and that was true. I was more interested in what food can we get in these little villages around here, you know, or or what drink or what drugs or whatever. And, uh, um, you know, I, I blew opportunities by, by swinging the pendulum of life with my disease. And, uh, um, and so, um, so, you know, rolling forward, um, you know, I had a, I had a lot of years of running around. I was talking about the geographics. I lived in Hawaii, lived in Maui, went to all these great places, and figured that I could find it there. And starting over again, all over the place. And um, um, you know, that that came to an end. And I was 29 years old, and I'd lived in a lot of places. I'd started up over again many times, and I actually got. I actually moved down here from Northern California after living in New York and all these other places. I'd ended up back home in Northern California. And uh, um, I was actually moving farther and farther away from people. I lived out in a little town called Stinson Beach. And um, it was really, really cool. It's uh, uh, part, you know, it's national wilderness out there, and it's just gorgeous. And I loved it. There were no people. I didn't really have to contend with people. It was just wildlife. Um, I was uh, 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 an innkeeper at a bed and breakfast where I could work um, 48-hour shifts, and I had access to the freezer and the fridge. And, like, I could, after hours, go in there and cook whatever I wanted. And I remember we had this, like, asabuco. You know what asabuco is? It's, it's an elaborate lamb shank, and it's like, yeah, they took them well in advance. And we were so, I was, I, and I had so many other compulsive overeaters that I got to party with and, and eat with at that inn up on Mount Tamalpais. Um, and we would just, we would just 
eat full shanks and and you know it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. And in fact, and in fact, um, it was kind of a cool place up on Mount Tamalpais. I think we were binging one night and going through some asabuco and eating cake out of the hand and and uh, like Jerry Garcia and his daughter came in. They wanted to have a glass of wine out there and we're like, oh, you know, who's up? Jerry's and it's a very it's like a ten ten room inn and we're like, that's Jerry Garcia. It's like, oh my god, you know, what what are, what are we gonna do? We're covered with food, like food on our faces and our hands and. Ran upstairs, opened up the door, dripping with, you know, if anybody's going to understand it, will be Jerry. He'll understand us. And, and so, so I, you know, I don't know. I just kept kind of slop, just dragging through. Nothing worked out. Um, I'd start again and again and again. And so I came down to Southern California, kind of running away from it all. And, uh, um, Rolled into Beverly Hills because that's where I belonged. I think I was uh, $60,000 in debt from shooting my film around the world, you know. And, 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 you know, I sat, while I was shooting my film around the world, putting it on credit cards, all this stuff, um, I sat in Munich during Oktoberfest and not wanting to eat too much either. And I didn't drink and I didn't eat at Oktoberfest in Munich. And I went to, like, a Mozart festival in Austria and didn't drink and didn't eat because I was trying to control it. I was just trying to prove to myself that I wasn't one of them. I'm not one of them. Bad mistake. If you're there and you are one, do it. But I blew it. Anyway, so um, so I'd, I'd come back and... Um, I'd come down to Southern California. I didn't know why, just to get the, get out of Northern California, get away from her, get away from everything that was up there that wasn't working out. And um, I, I landed at the Roxbury at an apartment next to the Roxbury complex. And um, I was on. I had no more money. It, you know, I had no way to keep going whatsoever. The credit cards were done. I wasn't really willing to go out and find a lower companion in the bar. I figured, you know, like I said, my mom had been sober about six years at that time. And I figured alcoholics couldn't turn me away. And I didn't have money for food. I didn't really have, but I had a $1,000 a week apartment, right? Uh, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And it, it's like, it's, it's, it's coming to its end really quick. And... Uh, what happened was I walked over to uh, uh, the Roxbury Menstag AA meeting to eat their food, really, to eat their donuts. I needed, you know, I needed a fix. And I went over there to eat their donuts and drink their coffee and just, like, get some relief around people. That was pretty much what I was looking for. And after a couple weeks of showing up at all the Roxbury whatever 12-step stuff was going on, whatever, it didn't matter because I knew they had coffee, and I knew that they had maybe donuts, maybe food, who knows. But then, they, you know, those 12-steppers, they can't turn me away, you know. I know I'm not one of them, but – and so uh, – so at the Roxbury Men's Stag AA meeting, these guys, um, uh, you know, what happens if, if you keep showing up, people kind of get, they're like, oh, hey, Chris, you're new, right? I have not raised my hand as a newcomer yet. And, uh, and I didn't want to get busted. I, I, I needed those donuts and I needed that coffee. And uh, um, they called me up to the podium. You know, it's like a meeting like this. They're like, any newcomers out there? And I'm like, God, they, what do I do? They know I'm new. I'm like, new, you know. And they called me up to the podium. I'm busted. So busted. I get up to the podium, and I, most amazing thing happened to me. And this is God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. I told them the truth. I said, I'm here to find a job. 
I know you guys are all in film and television. I'm looking for a big film and, you know, uh, I want a big job. You guys can probably provide it to me. And I'm here to eat your food and drink your coffee. And that was it. And they, they were like, oh, my God, they laughed so hard. And they were like, here, 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 you know, keep coming back. Here's a big book. And I'm like, I'm not one of you, you know, but thanks, you know, cool. Well, long story short, I was one of them. And I, I, I found the support to stop drinking and stop using drugs. And, and you know, my, my life changed dramatically and the excitement of that change in my life um, and not using drugs and alcohol anymore really led led me and kept me in a good place for for years and years and years and then um, you know not too long ago uh, uh, with 16 years in in uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous I found myself at this place, you know, with a family now, with kids, with a life, with a big job, with a big mortgage, you know, two dogs, all the right stuff. Life looks exactly like it's supposed to, and I'm absolutely loving what it looks like, you know. Um, house in Mandeville Canyon, gorgeous wife, um, you know, great kids. Life is absolutely perfect, except my little secret. My little secret is that every night I come home and binge from 11 to midnight on my kids' food or whatever because I cannot control life. I, I am absolutely uncomfortable at work. I don't like what we're doing. I'm making a lot of money. I'm sponsoring a lot of guys in AA, and it's like, you know, I don't want people to know that I'm broken. And the only way that I can address it, I thought, was this eating, you know, my private time, you know, from like everybody's asleep. And <laughs> my wife had gotten sober well before me and then was also came to this program and she was experiencing abstinence and recovery in this program. And as a result was going to bed early and waking up early <laughs> upon awakening she would do all this stuff she'd have to do for her sponsor and make all these calls and like whatever she was doing I was really glad she was asleep and in bed so that I could have it the way I wanted which was like me and Jay Leno and or Craig Ferguson better yet thank you Craig and um and and you know I could eat the way I wanted to eat and, and I was dying inside I was absolutely dying inside and um so 15 years sober um, my doctor, again, had been telling me for years, Chris, you're morbidly obese. Morbid, does that mean death? You know, that means death. That means I could die of, of my weight. And uh, my family on my dad's side has a disposition of, uh, of obesity. You know, they're Midwesterners, Chicago, Minnesota folks, my mom's side, Iowa farmers. You know, my favorite dish growing up, living in San Francisco where it's cold, was this, this white bread, wonder bread thing where they pour condensed milk all over it and then put it in the broiler, bake it up, and then, like, make sausage, you know, and it's like, like this, oh, it was called gooey toast, that's what it was, and it was an Iowa farm food called gooey toast, and I'm like, can we have gooey toast, you know, just like total, total, total sugar addict, you know, you know, I need, I need gooey toast, I don't feel good, give me gooey toast, um, and so, so that's, you know, I took, I took my comfort 
in eating. And, and here it was killing me. It was absolutely killing me. I, I had uh, uh, an aunt and an uncle who both were barely there on oxygen, barely alive from, from obesity. My dad exercising his ass off. Um, and in a normal body weight, you know, had had a stroke while exercising, you know, trying to fight this thing, like eating crazy, losing weight, eating crazy, losing weight. And, um, and that's, 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 that's where I found myself. And I'd been on diets and those hadn't worked. Um, I did find for a little while, um, and it was right, it, it was tough, when my second, my eight-year-old son was being born uh, and a couple years into it, you know, my wife was bottoming in this program, and I didn't really want to go home. My work was such a big deal, and I was making so much money, and like, you know, it was all looking so good. I didn't, I didn't even know that she was going through what she was going through with her food, and and part of the reason I didn't was that I was, I was, I believe today from you guys in what I'd call an exercise bulimia, where I I'd get up really early in the morning. Uh, like 5.36, be at work by 6.37, be the first guy there. I figure if I'm the first guy there and the last guy to leave, they'll know that I'm the one who should be running it. And they'll give me those good... And they did. But it made me working all the time. And then what I needed to do to keep my head on was I would go to Bikram's yoga three nights a week at 10.30 at night until midnight and then come home and pass out. And we did... Um, what, I was also doing the zone diet where they brought the food. I don't remember what it was called. And they brought food to you. So I didn't even choose my food. They brought the food to my front door. I ate that for the day. And I'm like, no choices. This is perfect. I'll just eat this food, exercise my ass off in this, in this, and everything will be good. Well, I did lose weight. And I loved all the kudos, all the guys I was working with. And, you know, um, um, I'm a producer in the television industry. And what you look like made a difference. And they're like, wow, the thin Chris. It's really great to see the thin Chris. I'm like, excellent. And it could have been speed. And nobody cared as long as I look good, you know. And that's what I felt, you know. That's what I felt. And I had lost touch with my family. And, and um, so that wasn't working. I couldn't keep it up. I think I did that for about a year, year and a half. And, um, and the company that I worked for saw me in that time as a real go-getter, you know. And, and so I really was promoted well up the ladder really quickly. But um, so, so to jump to what happened, um, essentially, like I said, 16 years sober, you know, seemingly everything's working, but I'm still binging. And uh, actually, 15 years sober, I came into this program, and I knew I had a problem. And um, the, the reason I knew I had a problem is I was at a, a camp out for my kids up in Santa Barbara, and I jumped up to catch a Frisbee, and when I came down, my ankle broke. I had a, I had a, a avulsion fracture, it's called. And I looked down, and I told everybody, oh, I stepped in that squirrel hole, you know, damn squirrel hole. There was no squirrel hole. It was just my 280 pounds coming down on my ankle. My body's not built to carry all this, man. And so I busted my ankle, and that was a wake-up call. I'm like, I busted my ankle. You know, I'm sure to have a heart attack. I'm not taking my Lipitor that I'm supposed to take because of the genetics. I'm not doing anything but dying. And I really recognized that, that I was dying. I was dying of compulsive overeating. And, uh, um, and so I came in here. And uh, uh, I got a great sponsor, um, Rich, and I started going to Kitchen Sink. And I'm like, you know what? I know from my experience with program that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this all the way. And I'm going to come in here, and I'm not going to say it doesn't work until 
I've done all 12 steps. And then after 12 steps, if it's not working, then I get to go. And I left that door open for me. And the deal was um, we worked through the Overeaters Anonymous 12 and 12, and I got through my fourth step, and I did a fifth step, and it was phenomenal. The experience was phenomenal. I knew this is what I needed. And, um, and what happened was I got really busy at work. Um, pressure started really mounting. And, uh, um, and my OA sponsor lost his abstinence. And he told me that he couldn't work with me anymore, and we were in the middle of a fifth step. And I took offense against OA. I said, no way. That's not possible. You know what? This is, this, and I had an AA sponsor at the time who said, I guess it's a sign. Maybe you don't need to go. And I, I said, I guess it is. Sounds like a sign, huh? And so I took that year off. You know, I took that year off, and I took offense against OA, and I said, they don't have what I need there. I thought they did. And, um, and let me tell you where that led you. <laughs> it led me. So uh, July 31, to 2009, um, I'm mad as a hatter. Crazy. Politics were a year into Obama. And uh, uh, my business partner, uh, you know, we have very different political views. And uh, this particular morning, we had both bought new cars in our perfect worlds. And... Um, and I was driving him into work with his dad in the front seat. And this is my best friend. I was, the, you know, best man in his wedding. And his dad's in the front seat. And I'm driving him into work. We work in Hollywood together. And we take the sunset all the way down. And he keeps going on me about my family's political views and my wife's, the time that she spent helping, you know. And I'm telling him, stop. You've just got to stop. You've got to stop talking. You've got to stop. And he keeps going and he keeps pressing. And, you know, he and I are like brothers. We, we prod each other. We, we tease and we do this sort of thing. But um, about the time I got in front of the Beverly Hills Hotel on Sunset, I had had enough. And I had turned around and I was about to really just nudge him on the shoulder and say, listen, I mean it. Stop it. But what came out of me was that I absolutely slapped him as hard as I could across his face with every ounce of energy. I mean, I hit that man hard. And the word is bitch slap. I bitch slapped him in front of his dad. And, you know, this is like 16 years over. I, you know, what is up? And it's like I knew what was up. What was up was the food was up. I was not abstinent. I was not a sober man because of food. And, and you know, at that point, and, you know, I think we went through, if, if any of you here were behind us, I think we made a huge lineup of cars behind us as we jumped in and out of the car at the bus stop, whether he'd ride or wouldn't, or whether our family's ostracized from his and his dad saying, you guys are unbelievable, whatever. We... I made amends to that man, and he got back in the car, and, you know, we've never been the same since, I'll tell you that, you know, as much as we joke and laugh about it, we've never been the same since. That's, that's hard. So, so, that night, um, and it was a Friday night, that night, I usually have care of the kids on a Friday night, so I usually don't go to a meeting, and I went to uh, a meeting. And I knew any meeting would be fine. And I actually went to Pacific Group Men's Stag, and there I saw, standing in the back as I walked into the meeting, 
the man who's now my sponsor, Michael B., and I knew he had a long-term abstinence in OA, and I knew this was a God shot for me. It was like, look, ask him, do everything, you know? And so that's what I did. I jumped into the program with him, and I did whatever he said, and I was willing to do it, and I still am. And, you know, um, by going through the steps, you know, and it says in this book, there's a simple kit that's laid in front of us, and if you're willing to do it, you too can have this this abstinence, this recovery, this this uh, reliance upon God instead of food, and and this dis-ease gets taken care of by working these steps and by staying in this program and taking commitments and, and you know, um, doing the deal. And he, he did a couple things immediately, and I'll jump into this, you know, just so that you know where I come from, you know. My, my, the first thing he asked me to do was to go to a food school. And I had already heard of food schools, and that was one thing I was not willing to do. And I said, you know what? And it was Weight Watchers. And I said, is that what you do? And he said, that's what I do. And I said, oh, God, no. Okay. And I did that, and it worked, and that sucks. But So I'm still doing it. Um, I have lost 25 pounds in a year and two months, and it's slow for me. And I, and the first time through, one of the reasons why I left that first time through was that I'd lost 10 pounds in a year of being here, and I was not okay with that. That's all that was lost. And today, it's very important to me. My phys- physical abstinence and physical recovery is really important to me for my life. For me to not be um, uh, morbidly obese and to get to a normal body mass, I need to lose another 40 pounds, and I'm doing it. But... I'm not basing my participation in Overeaters Anonymous on what my outcome is on that. Great. Um, And so uh, the other thing he asked me to do is he said, um, I want you to go through the steps again. And I said, absolutely, let's do it. Um, And he said, the way that we're going to do that is you're going to sit down uh, with another man and go through the book, and you're going to read the book, and you're going to do whatever it says in there. And I said, cool. And he gave us this thing which I had never seen before called the Unofficial Guide to the Twelve Steps by Dr. Paul in San Francisco. And this is not approved literature, which is why I'm so happy to be holding it here now. But um, so, and, and this was really cool. I'm like, what is that thing? No way, I'm not doing that. And then at the meeting... He showed me two other guys that he sponsored, and they're holding these things, too, going, what? What are you talking about? And we're like, okay, you know, we'll do it. And Gary's one of those guys. And so for for 11 months, we met every Tuesday night and powered through these steps. And, um, you know, when I work with others, that's what I, I – I'll either put some guys together because I can't get to them, or I'll put some guys together and make a work group, a work group and have them go through the steps. The bottom line is going through this book. You know, the information in this book will free you from having to medicate yourself away from not being able to control reality, you know, or to control what you think it's supposed to be. And that that is the case for me. Um, You know, I really wanted to talk about the steps. And, um, you know, I actually, where I am right now, um, every day I commit my food. Um, I do a formal 10th and 11th step every day, and I call it into my sponsor at 6.20 in the morning. 
Um, I got a bunch of guys I sponsor. They call me. They're doing exactly what I'm doing, and I listen to their 10th and 11th steps. Okay? And we commit our food, and if our food changes, which it can, and that's cool, it does. We text it in before we do it, and we stay within. Each guy that I sponsor has a little different plan with their food that works for them, and, and we've worked it out. You know, I turned it over to a sponsor to help me decide what to do with my food, and, and he gave me a plan, and I'm doing that. Um, but we do a formal 10th and 11th step, and we call it in in the morning. I get up way early. You know, my wife is still up a half hour before me in the dark. And, and um, you know, I love that we have an abstinent home. Um, you know, and, and I hear people talk about perfect absten- abstinence. I can't even say the word abstinence. Um, and... And I don't really know what that is, but I know that I'm abstinent. It's been a year and a half, and I know that I'm doing what we do here, and I'm commit- and I feel so much better. I'm I'm attracted to gray and fuzzy land, which is where there's little commitment and little structure, and I feel like I'll get power out of that. And it's absolutely the reverse. The more I'm willing to do in this program, the more freedom I have to do other things, to not think about my food, and to to experience life on life's terms. Um, it doesn't look the way I wanted it to look, but it kind of looks better. You know, I I left my job back in December, and I didn't replace it, and I expected I'd run right out and make it happen. And I was running four companies, which was ridiculous before I got um, before I got abstinent. And four months into it, a bunch of the companies went away, and that's a complete godshot. I don't need to be running four companies, like right. A lot of people can just have one job. My priority is in here. My purpose is with you guys to be of service to you guys and let God work through me by working with you and by doing this work. That is so much more fulfilling than how much money's in the bank or what house I have or any of that stuff. And it's like there's a humbling. There's an absolute humbling by turning yourself over to this program that will give you the power. Lack of power is our dilemma. And food ain't going to fix it. Drugs, alcohol, the right girl, the right... It's not It's going to fix it. The only thing that's going to fix it is, you know, finding a higher power that we can tap into and dealing with our dis-ease on a daily basis. And it takes a village for me, you know? And it takes multiple programs for me. But it's like, so what? Great, I'm in. And so, you know, God's done for me what I can't do for myself by... You know, really, since December, I've only had one job, and it's been awesome. It's been so cool. I have so much time to spend with my kids, and I'm coaching soccer, and I'm doing all this stuff, and, and you know, being with you guys and watching you guys, um, you know, after having gone through these steps um, and made amends and, and gotten into 10, 11, and 12 and working with others now, it's like I get to watch what you did for me happen to you if you're new and it's like everybody in this room who who has had this thing happen we're essentially you know we transform and it's slow and it takes years and it's never over you don't just get there and it's over you don't graduate sorry you don't graduate you know i didn't i don't graduate maybe someone does um but um so but i i I absolutely do not regret the past and i i live for um I live for the program and for for working these steps with others. So that's it. I think maybe do we still have time for questions? Yeah, excellent. Any questions? That's it.
you knew I would ask a question. Thank you, Chris. Can you tell us a little about how your um, sense of spirituality and your sense of God has evolved from pre-programmed to So the question is, how has my sense of God and spirituality changed uh, since when? Since since I came into OA? Yeah. Since I came into... Well, I can tell you, I, I take a lot more action. Um, I definitely... Uh, that, that daily... Tenth step with a meditation and prayer and reading literature first thing in the morning and doing uh, pages 84 to 87 upon awakening. I have so much more action in my life today than I ever had before that, that leads me to a higher power. But I don't have to work so hard. It comes to me more regularly throughout the day. And like I said, I, have, I really kind of have less disease, you know, um, by doing all the things that we do in here. Um, um, I can't get enough of this either. This is awesome, you know. The the and the the twelve step work and working with others and being of service, you know, it's just phenomenal. Um, but but I think that's that's the answer to your question is that I'm actually more in action than I've ever been before, and and it and you know God's all around me and you guys. And, and I get calls from guys I sponsor, and I make calls to my sponsors, and it's like I'm so connected all day long by all this action that it's, it's great. That's how it's different. Any other questions? Do we still have that? Hi. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for your pitch. Um, how do you work um, 12 steps and OA into your relationship with your wife? Um, the question is how do I work the 12 steps and OA into my life with my wife? Um, Hmm, how do I work the 12 steps? Um, you know, we each have our own programs, and I think very much so, and it's true of my mom and AA. She was an Eskimo just by getting sober. You know, her life improved so much that I kind of was a... Like, I would never have walked in the room had I not had some hint that something good could happen there. And I think with my wife, too, she came in this program before I did, and I think I was kind of off watching and so she works her program, and I work my program, and we give each other that space. And I think knowing that she's working the steps, and she's working with others, she too is in 12, she's been through the steps, um, and she's working with others. And I think that process of working with others and being constantly in the steps, because we're talking about them and being reminded by the people that we're working with about what it was like for us, um, I, I, I think that, you know, um, both of us being in action uh, around our disease, we have less disease, and so we have we have uh, more of a common grounds to communicate on. You know, money tough, sex intimacy tough, and it's like we're still learning. And um, but you know, uh, her her trust in the steps around food. And we let each other do our own thing with our food. But I can tell you, you know, when she's cooking the meals and she's abstinent and she's making an abstinent meal for herself and if she's cooking for me, chances are pretty good I'm going to have a better meal. You know, that helps. That's a really big deal. Um, does that answer your question? Any other questions? Well, thank you guys for, I think that's all the time that we have. Thank you for letting me be of service. Thank Lucy for asking me to speak here tonight. And thank all of you guys. Thanks. Thanks.